0: Looking at Stephen's great speech. And in the speech, it's over 50 verses. And at the end of it, he gets stoned. Like with stones. (laughs) Now, there's a little bit of background, of course, because Stephen has been seized. He kind of started out as a busboy, along with six other guys. Uh, He happens to be a a Hellenistic Jew, or just another way of saying Jews that grew up out in the out in the Roman colonies or the Grecian colonies. He did not grow up in Jerusalem itself. He probably didn't grow up speaking Aramaic. He likely grew up speaking Greek. All of the quotations that he makes from the Bible are from a Greek Bible. We can tell by the way that he quotes it. So he's got a little bit of a different slant from all of the apostles that have gone before him on this same hallowed ground of the temple, bringing the word of God only to be receiving the blowback of persecution that comes against Peter and John, all the apostles, and now after Peter and John, the other apostles, uh, continue to go for it, the unlikely situation that the folks that are going to serve food to the widows, all of a sudden they now become the frontline workers of the ministry as well. And Stephen being one of those. He was a man that was picked for the great duty of making sure that all of the Grecian widows among the Christians were receiving their food. And in the process of all of that, he was recognized for being a man full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And now somehow as he's like serving food and doing all of this, he also must be recognized from everybody else around him on the temple courts as doing all the stuff that priests normally do. Because in Judaism... All the stuff that he's doing... Serving the poor... Taking care of their needs... Redistributing the proceeds... That are coming in for the work of God... Making sure that it's equitable... Making sure that there's social justice... And bringing the word of God... All the while... That's what priests do... And I would imagine... Priests started flocking around him... Saying... Why are you doing... Like our stuff... Right now... And he begins to have dialogue with them... And as he does... They try to argue with them, and it's interesting that not one of them can stand up to his wisdom or his argumentation. Reminds me of your teens. <laughs> they're good. Oh, they're good. Matter of fact, they're so good, you should have them serve the tables at your house from now on. Because they're obviously really well qualified for that. So, But look at where they'll launch into right afterwards. Alright, so... It it also says here that they began to bring false witnesses because they had nothing else to bring his way. So they brought false witnesses up against him. And when they did, now they could kind of make a bit of a a case against him, but it's all farce anyway. But they bring the case against him in verse 15, the last verse of chapter 6. It says, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, let me give you a little bit of perspective here. And this is the Sanhedrin. This will be the scene for the rest of this sermon. Until they take him out of here to to stone him. He is in the most intimidating crucible that you could ever imagine. He goes from busboy to suddenly being on the firing line of pressure deluxe. And as he's in the middle of this, it's not as though there's a crowd just that he has to look out after and report to. The crowd is all around him. And he being a a Greek, but yet a Jew, grew up a Jew, ethnically Jew, his concept of his heroes growing up, the playing cards, if they had such a thing as playing cards, of the leaders of the faith, he would have walked into this room and said, those are all my heroes. There they are. And there's the high priest sitting over the entire assembly. Wow! Wow! I finally made it to the big time, but it's not going to uh, be in the way that I think he he really wanted. I'm finally before the Supreme Court. Now, you see the two guys down at the bottom at the two writing desks. They are not part of the Sanhedrin. They are the scribes. And the fellow over here writes down everything that he thinks is righteous and will bring about an acquittal for the man being accused. And the fellow over on this side is writing feverishly because he's writing down everything negative that would be able to condemn him. So I would imagine as Stephen is kind of going for it, and he's hearing the scribbling behind him, he's like, hey, 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 how about this guy, come on, I got some good stuff here, why is your pen down, come on, let's go, let's record some of this stuff. And and yet this is the dynamic as, as he begins this speech. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and begin to read. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? What are the charges? They were brought up a little bit earlier. The charges are, You are desecrating the temple. You're speaking against our laws. You're speaking and blaspheming God. And you're speaking against Moses himself. Those are the charges against him. It was was said earlier in chapter 6. So know that he's now before them. And this is what he's got to accomplish. He's got to let them know that he honors God. He upholds the law, he respects Moses, and I'm not so sure how he feels about the temple itself. But all of that will become evident as as he makes his way through here. Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. By the way, right away he begins with the God of glory. An honoring phrase of God that everybody sitting there would have recognized right away. And probably them thinking, what's up with these false charges? This is a man who seems to have a very high opinion of our great God. Verse, and, and by the way, you'll notice that the Sanhedrin, they have a vested interest their interest is in this place and this building. They sit, the Sanhedrin is in the temple, uh, is, I'm sorry, is in the courtyard of hewn stones. Hewn just means that they use some sort of an iron implement to make the stones. So that's the name of this little courthouse that they're in. The, the, uh, the, the uh, courtroom or, or the, the, the uh, courtyard of hewn stones. And they have a vested interest in building up the temple, building up the treasury, building up their power, building up their position. And all of it centers on Jerusalem in this place rather than in the spread out Jews that could perhaps vie for for being authoritative in their honoring of God. They want it all centralized in this very spot. Now he goes out of his way to say, look at how God worked in the beginning. He worked in Abraham, of all people, not here in the temple, but in Mesopotamia, in Haran, in a land far away. That's where our heritage begins, not here. God is not confined to this. And keep that in mind as I go through. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you're now living. He gave him no inheritance here not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, And afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Here now he begins to show that he is a man that recognizes and honors righteousness. That Stephen upholds the law, but this law transcends simply their written code. This law of circumcision was given centuries before. Or not, well, it was given about a century before. The written code was even given, as it was given to Abraham. Actually, centuries before that. And and the idea of circumcision... For Israel, of course, was a a physical circumcision as a sign that they are a special holy people set apart to God. But as the prophets begin to talk to Israel about coming back to God again and again, they said, the thing that really matters, though, is are your hearts circumcised? Are your ears circumcised so that you can hear and obey the word of God? Are your eyes circumcised so that you can really see God? It's this idea that that a crust can form over our calloused hearts or eyes or ears that would keep us from being able to behold the great God and that fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. And so circumcision begins to play an important role even right away in his speech. Uh, Moving on. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Now, this is their first deliverer. They're enslaved in Egypt, and the great exodus, the great Passover, the great deliverance is brought about by, by, at first, I'm sorry, the the, the idea that their their very existence prior to Egypt was in jeopardy because of a famine, and God sent them Joseph as a deliverer. And what do they do to their deliverer? Well, this is a pattern that will present itself again and again. They reject the love of God. And Joseph as the deliverer, but because of jealousy among the the brothers, their jealousy of their deliverer causes them to reject God's overture of love. And what they do? They sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made a ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem, placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor and Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, that is, that you will come out of this nation, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, he's quoting now from Exodus, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people, oppressed our ancestors, by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. Um, Some some translations even say that he was beautiful in the the sight of God. It's, It's all this idea that he was quite favored. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, that is exposed, as those babies were being exposed to die... Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And by the way, Stephen is the only one who gives us this information in the Bible because it's not given to us in the Old Testament. Moses, verse 22, was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Uh, so when, when you're watching all of the different cartoons or movies about Moses and you're like, where was that? And this is one of them. I'm like, wait a minute, they got all this stuff about him. Growing up and being educated in the palace, and you read Exodus, you don't see it there. Well, the Bible does give us that information, but it's through the inspired speech of Stephen here. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to defend and avenge him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Again, the next deliverer after Joseph delivering them from famine, the next deliverer delivering them out of slavery is Moses. And how do the people of God respond to this overture of love? They reject him. Now, notice, though, that Stephen is honoring Moses to the greatest degree. There are certain events in Moses' life, there are about four or five of them, that could be interpreted either positively or negatively. This incident of avenging an Israelite is one of those events that becomes a litmus test of what is your view of Moses. And Stephen's view of Moses is a very high view of Moses. So, as he's checking off all the boxes in front of the Sanhedrin, they're having to think, wow, he actually has got it going on, even from the Moses standpoint. The other charge that apparently these liars had brought up against him. Verse 27, I'm sorry, verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he led them out of Egypt, performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. And that Deuteronomy 18.15 quotation that Stephen makes is the basis for why all of Israel, even at this very moment, throughout all the city has been thrown into what's called Messianic fever. Because this is one of the great Messianic passages. One of the great promises that God will send you a Deliverer. Will send you the Messiah. He will be like me, but He will actually transcend me. And this promise from Deuteronomy 18.15 has animated and captivated their imaginations. Thus, throughout all of Jesus' ministry, there was always the wonder and the heightened excitement, Could this be the Messiah? And indeed he was. And he's in the long line of deliverers sent by God. And what do the people of God do to the people, to the deliverers that God sends? Verse uh, thirty uh, verse thirty-nine, maybe I read this. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. What the heck? They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, ah, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time when they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it, reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun and the moon and the stars. And when we continually reject, even, revel- uh, even Romans 1 Verse 24, 26, 28 tell us that, yeah, you may be pretty far down the road of hard-heartedness, but I can turn you over to something even more dark, even more addicting, even more despairing. And so this was the pattern with Israel, as they rejected overture after overture. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets, and this is the, the quote now. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. What is this pattern thing that he's talking about? Is what was shown in Exodus 25. Moses was brought up to the top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And while there, God not only showed him the law, but he showed him models of what the different implements of the worship temple and tabernacle would be. But he showed them the tabernacle, not the temple. He showed him the tabernacle, the tent, that would travel with them all through the desert. And in seeing this pattern, up there, Moses then was able to bring it back, and they ultimately built it as a full-sized tabernacle. That must have been cool for Moses, right? To have been up there and and actually seen this pattern that he would then take down and and turn into the, the, uh, the center of worship as it became. But what's interesting is it's only a pattern. And even what they built and even where they are right now, it's only a pattern. Imagine if Moses could have peered into the actual center of worship, into the real Holy of Holies, into the real throne of God, which this only approximated. It was meant to approximate that. It was meant to approximate God's presence in some very minuscule way, but that's all that it was. However, the Most High does not live, I'm sorry, in the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors, I'm in verse 45, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them, when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, that being the first temple. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Isaiah 66 says that. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool kind of house will you build for me? What is this? This little pattern, this little temple. it a temple for aunts? <laughs> or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And then before he comes to the end right here, I wanna, I wanna just get an, an appreciation for what he's trying to make clear to everyone. God is bigger than you could imagine. And you think that even though, Stephen's here saying, even though here we are in this temple, and it's pretty sweet, it's Herod's temple, it's twice as big as Solomon's temple, it, it's kind of a big deal, but nonetheless, you want to know big? Like, you really want to know big? I mean, let, let, me, let me show you big. And this is the sunrise this morning. And, and when that sun crested over the rotating earth, also known as a sunrise, The moment that you could see the rays of the sun was actually 8 minutes and 20 seconds after it really happened. Why? Because we're so stinking far away from the sun. That's how big our solar system is. It's that massive. That light traveling at 186,000 miles per second. How fast is that? In one second, light can go all the way around the equator seven and a half times. One, one thousand. Right? I mean, that's one second. We're talking eight and a half minutes almost. From when you first see the sunrise versus when it really did happen. Now, let's say we take that distance, which I think is like 93 million miles. And, is that right? Right? Somebody said yes. Praise God. Okay. <laughs> Nerd trap. <laughs> but anyway, 93 million miles. Let's say we reduced it to one sheet of paper. Right? One sheet of paper. If, if we did that, and we use this distance, right? The distance from... 93 million miles reduced to one sheet of paper. 93 million miles. Eight plus minutes for light to travel at an astounding rate is all represented by one sheet of paper to approximate the size of our whole solar system, not just us to the sun, but the whole solar system. Right? It would be, basically in my Bible, the book of Genesis. Never mind that. (laughs) I meant that to happen. Alright, so it would be like that, right? I mean, that's our whole solar system. It's 60 pages. Not those many pages. This many pages, right? 60 60 pages is our entire solar system. But each of these pages is 93 million miles. Each of these pages is 8 minutes of light traveling at the speed of light. Alright, but this is the God that they're trying to confine to this that place that we were looking at earlier. All right, now, let's say we were to now look at how far it is to the next star, which is Alpha Centauri. All right, we know that based on um, uh, the Robinsons, right? They're always going on. All right, I know there was a danger, Will Robinson. Danger, right, they're always going to Alpha Centauri, aren't they? All right, anyway, here's how high That stack would be. It wouldn't be just 60 60 pages. It would be a stack, if if this is about 35 feet high to the top of the curtain, it would be twice as high as that. That's to our next nearest star. That's just like one star to the next star. It's one star to the next star. Our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has a hundred billion stars. Alright, let's just say we want to approximate using this same dimensional analysis of just our one galaxy. Our one galaxy would be not just 60 pages high, not 70 pages high, it would be 310 miles high. Just one galaxy. And by the way, how many galaxies are there? There are, so see the grains of sand? You can't see them so well there, but there is approximately the same number of stars in the heavens, as there are grains of sand in all the earth. And that number happens to be 100 billion times 100 billion. And again, just to our star, that's 93 million miles. That's eight and a half minutes. So the next, I mean, look at, look at how, how big, think of how massive our God is. Yeah. He does not live in our little neighborhood temple where our, our Sanhedrin is located. He does not live here, is basically what Stephen is saying. (laughs) Bam! Do you think for a moment, I I know you got some nice clothes on, and I know you guys are like the trading cards I had. He doesn't live here. you got to get that on straight. And then at the end of it, he does such a masterful job of showing that in no way does he desecrate the law or Moses or God. But the temple... He's not afraid to at least let them bring it into perspective. I think he's basically saying, Guys, I think you got a little bit of an edifice complex. <laughs> and we need to kind of get a little perspective here on these bricks that you put together. It's just some stuff made by the hands of men, and we're in turn just creatures made by this amazing God. And he transcends all of this stuff, and yet, who are we that he keeps having mercy on us? and keeps intervening in our lives. And I'm on trial right now because he did it again in the most magnificent of all ways. But you're not listening. And so, here comes the grand finale. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. That is just so awesome. (laughs) Like, what a close, right? Like, maybe it wasn't the close. You know, he gets killed in the middle. Maybe, you know, he might have gone on longer if he didn't lead with that. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. This is a slam, by the way. Think about when there's, like, there's one passage in the Bible that guys like, right? And even if you're trying to get your teenage boy excited by the Bible, where do you go? You go to David and Goliath. And what's one of the things that you like about David and Goliath is that David's not afraid to trash talk a behemoth of a man. All right? And Goliath is ah, you come against me with sticks like I'm looking at a dog. And David's like, oh, shut up, you uncircumcised Philistine. It's like, so you went there, David. But this is, a, this is an intense blow that is being leveled by Stephen to kind of group them in the worst of the trash talking genres here. Like you, uncircumcised of heart and ears, all of you, as you sit here in judgment of me right now. And and on he goes, by the way. You are just like your ancestors. Now the word here is fathers, if you have another translation, it probably says that in older translation. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's an interesting phrase for Jesus, by the way. It's what he's called in Isaiah 53. It's why he's so amazing is because while Stephen loves the law, he also knows that the law doesn't love him. And the law is no easy thing. And the only chance of ever being righteous before God through the law Is because God will send a deliverer. God will send a righteous one. God will send a righteous one who will fulfill the law, not only for him, but for Stephen, for all of these people sitting here, for all of you, for all on whom the Lord our God will call. He will fulfill it. It's as though. All right, so last week I. uh, uh, I, I spent eight hours doing something called a driver improvement course. You don't know why, maybe I just wanted to be a better driver. You stiff necked people, you always rush to judgment. Okay, so maybe it was court ordered. And and uh, anyway, I, 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 was, I was driving through a small town in Virginia, and, and uh, speed limit went from 55 to 40. It sounds like I'm making excuses right now. Let's just say I got caught speeding, and there's all kinds of really good excuses for it that you probably don't want to hear, and it really will only make you disdain me right before you right now. So let me just say, I was speeding with gusto. It was all on me. I knew what I was doing. I imagine that once all of these Hardys and, and uh, Royal Farms started showing up, that the speed limit went from 55 to 45. Anybody would have concluded that, even though, it, yes, anyway, so. <laughs> and I go to the 45 mile an hour speed limit, not adjusting my speed, zoop, boom, anyway. Now, I, I have a choice. I, I can either pay the fine, pay the penalty, or go through this eight hour driver improvement course. So that I now know stuff, that I really wish I never knew. <laughs> that if you're coming at me and I have my high beams on, I need to lower them when you reach within 500 feet of me. <laughs> However, if you're in front of me, I have up until 200 feet behind you before I have to lower my high beams. You know what, there's a lot of this stuff, but I can talk to you afterwards and I think I'll be enthralling. I'll save it for another time. But anyway, I, have, I could have done two different things to fulfill the law there in Exmoor or Cape Charles, Virginia. I could have either, one, driven 45 miles an hour, the posted speed, or I could have taken 8 hours of driver improvement and $70 in fines. I could have done one of those two things. Now, here's the amazing thing in Jesus, if we're using that same analogy. Jesus drives 45 miles an hour through Exmoor, Virginia, and... Jesus takes the eight-hour driver improvement course and pays the $70 penalty and does all of that. He does all of that and then some for everything, for any offense that any of us could have ever incurred. He does all of that and through all of that is the righteous one. And by him and by his double obedience plus paying the penalty, we all have hope. We all have hope if we accept the Deliverer that God has provided. Now, as, as we come back to this passage, the, the group here that he's speaking to does not listen to him. And in a sense, he didn't make it easy for them. Right? He begins with you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised, and you know what? You're just like your father. I don't know which of those makes it harder. I had another slide, but I, but I got rid of it. It, it. it said, you're just like your mother. Maybe, maybe that would have been harder for you. But, but this is what, what he brings their way. And, but it is nonetheless the wake-up call that is required if they're going to recognize the magnificence of the deliverance that God is bringing their way. God is in the business of disrupting their lives to open their eyes, to circumcise their hearts and ears. God is in the business of disrupting so that they can see this overture of love and be able to receive it and know the deliverance, the peace, the atonement, the community, the alignment with the creator of all the universe to be right with him. My goodness, what wonder, what glory. And yet... Instead, they want to be just like their fathers. Their fathers were stiff-necked. Their fathers resisted the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it's, it's hard to recognize that you're stiff-necked. It might be helpful, like if in the middle of, of our conversation, and, and you needed to bring it to me, right? And to be able to say, Ed, you know what? Like the, the, the arrogance that, the, that I saw in the interaction that you had during that staff meeting, I mean, it, it really was quite disturbing. And, and again, I, I, may not, I may not be able to hear that, right? Because I'm really good at justifying myself. Maybe most of us are. And, and I'm doing a whole lot of calculations in my head. And, and I think it would be great if we had like a little prop that we could kind of hand to somebody as we're trying to help them out. And, and say, you know, I don't, I don't think you're getting this, Ed. Here, let's see how this does. Put this on. This is just to remind you that I'm talking to you about being stiff-necked. Because I think nobody thinks they're stiff-necked. Nobody thinks they're proud. Nobody does. As a matter of fact, Psalm 36 says that we flatter ourselves too much to hate or detect our own sin. So I think, like, if, if you need to have this talk with me, bring this along. And I'll sit here with this on and be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, I, I, got, I got what's going on here. But here, here I think are the ways that we resist the Holy Spirit with a stubborn, proud, stiff neck. I think when, when somebody needs to be able to disrupt us, to disrupt us to be able to actually intervene in our life and be able to point out in some way or another the way that we've st- sinned, or have been disregarding or thoughtless, whatever it is that, that somebody needs to do, you know they don't like doing it. There, there are very, very few people that actually revel in conflict. Yeah, I, I know Bill McDowell's from New Jersey, and, you know, I mean, so listen, besides Bill McDowell, right? is uh, <laughs> from New Jersey, and she doesn't like conflict, so it's, it's not like a, a, a universal rule that, that, that goes on there. But, but for the most of us, we, we don't like conflict. So if somebody has to come to you and, and be able to plead with you, you know what, I'm, I'm seeing this. Oh my goodness. That's the time for us to think, whoa, time to listen up. I just might have a stiff neck. But the Holy Spirit prompts us in other ways too. I, I loved what the Mardinis were just saying. Sometimes the Holy Spirit prompts us To actually live out the Lordship of Jesus. To actually give up anything. Give over everything. To go and do the Lord's will. In so many different ways. You know, Stephen didn't give up his busboy job as he actually engaged in all these things that he did. He was still serving tables when all of this went down. But he recognized that I can still do this and still be a force for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. How about you? Have you had the Holy Spirit prompting? that Maybe there's a bit more that I was meant to do with my life. Maybe I wasn't meant to live this life of quiet desperation. Maybe I wasn't meant to be the most expert in defining boundaries and, 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 and healthy distancing from living out radical Jesus walks in, in, in my days. Maybe there is something more. If that's the case, check your neck. Yeah. You might benefit from this. And you realize, whoa, whoa, oh, whoa, well, hey, oh! Look what I got on! I Maybe mean, I need to be realizing that I have been resisting the Holy Spirit. I've always been meant to do more. I've always been meant to make a difference. I was always meant to be significant. And not to be insignificant in my community for the cause of Christ. God forbid that would be the description of any one of us. Maybe it's maybe it's the fact that you have been prompted by the Holy Spirit to say some of these things to someone else. Not easy, right? That it's, it's time for you to give a spur or an encouragement. It's time for you to interrupt with a reproof. It's time for you to give a life-giving re- rebuke that would really just take someone from the brink. Has there been an occasion where God has made it known to you? Even even if you didn't see it with your own eyes, but somehow he felt that you're a faithful witness. That he made it known to you a situation that you need to intercede. Don't don't require the the neck brace. Run after it. Know the joy that, that comes from being able to run after it the way that God has always meant you to live. We're we're not meant to be people that have these amazing interventions of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But there's a big one. Maybe some of you are studying the Bible right now, trying to figure out whether you're ready to surrender your whole life over to Jesus or not. Are you dragging your feet? Are you dabbling? Are you trifling with God? Could, Could that be the case? That's the most frightening of all right now. But, but to recognize what is it that the Holy Spirit is really pleading for your surrender to know the beautiful, reckless abandon of living for nothing but something greater. Living for something that cannot be shaken. Rather than putting all of your trust in something that is destined to fall apart. No matter what that might be. It could be you, your health, your family, your looks, your kids, your house, your job. All of those things are all actually destined to crumble. And if you're putting your stock in a kid-centric life or in a health-centric life, my goodness, all of that is guaranteed by definition to disappoint you. There's only one thing. Why not embrace that? Please, I beg you, please. The Holy Spirit's prompting in this occasion is, is the very thing that they were like their fathers in. They thought, oh, good enough, near enough. Nice enough. Respected enough. It's not what gets you there. Yeah. Unless you are radically surrendered. Living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have not responded to the loving overture intervention of God. That's right. yeah. And it is crazy obvious. When that really does occur. Yeah. They say, well, maybe he is, maybe... No! That person has a a face that shines like an angel, just like Stephen. That's a person that is obviously different from anyone around them. But finally, while they were just like their fathers, I love this, that Stephen, he was just like Jesus. He's in the same spot as Jesus. He's being accused in the same way as Jesus. But look at, look at why he's able to be like Jesus. Now it's not enough for us just to say, I'm going to be like Jesus. If you do that, that will crush you. That version of Christianity is all based on how deep your discipline well runs. And if you think Stephen was just the most gutted out, disciplined fellow amongst their crew, and that's why he was picked for this great grand honor of being the first martyr, you're wrong. The reason that he was able to do what he was able to do is because he was impacted by, Deep down by Jesus and his love. He was so secure, knowing that there was nothing that he had to perform in, in order to gain any sort of standing. He already had it because of his deliverer. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. No one in that crowd would have mistaken what he was talking about. Daniel 7, Son of Man, Ancient of Days, he is saying that Jesus is God, and that he is enthroned with him in heaven. But why is he standing? We'll talk about that. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Can someone say childish? Ah, I don't want to hear it anymore. Ah. This is no longer the august supreme court. This is now mob justice. This has become a lynching at its basest level. Ah, we don't want to hear it. Let's get this guy. They dragged him out of the city because you gotta stone somebody out of the city and stoned him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named... Dun, 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 Saul. We'll talk about him a whole lot coming up. While they were... Not today, by the way, in case you're worried by that. You're like, what? It was time to talk about him? Well, look at this. I, 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 we got like two verses to go. We can do this thing. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's just like Jesus. Then he fell on his knees, and he cried out, Lord do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. You know what was the secret of Stephen's strength? Jesus knew who his Deliverer was. And he knew the power of his Deliverer. And he knew the intimacy of his Deliverer. And he knew the benefit and the effect on him of his Deliverer. As he looked up into heaven, you know what he saw? He saw the reality of that they were trying to recreate as a model. This is the pattern of the real courtroom, of the real august throne scene. Every throne scene in the ancient Near East was also the area where cases were adjudicated. He saw the real seat of judgment. It wasn't with that guy up there, it was with that guy up there that he's looking at. And because he understood this, and was not caught up in this, Stephen was able to live Jesus the way that he lived. And so can we. But look at what he saw. It says that while Jesus made intercession for the sinners, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, suddenly what does he see? He sees Jesus standing. Why would he stand? There are lots of theories on this, but most of them converge on one main idea. It's not that he's standing to give him a standing ovation. That's kind of a a, a modern Western idea. Uh, It's a nice idea, but it's not really the likely reason why Jesus is standing. The reason Jesus is standing is because of what Hebrews 7 says. Because Jesus is living to make intercession for us. Every day. What he sees is he looks up face glowing, refulgent glory of God reflected in his face. As he sees that scene, he sees Jesus stand and become his advocate. He sees Jesus point to that small little model of a courtroom down there and recognize, ain't nothing but a thing. Father, this is the real courtroom that counts. And I know Stephen. I know him well. And Jesus is the one who says, and Luke writes about it as well, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's like, that's my boy! That's my Stephen! I got you, Stephen. I got you. you looking up here? I got you. Everything's covered, Stephen. You have decided to put your trust in me. You've surrendered and turned your life to me. And I got you. Let's do this thing, Stephen. I got you. Father, this man is a man of righteousness. This man has my righteousness. This man is without blemish. This man... Is a man of honor this is a man that we honor now and with that Stephen was able to endure the worst of all suffering but here's the amazing thing is that Jesus doesn't just make intercession for Stephen he's not just standing every day to make intercession for Stephen he's doing it for you it's why he lives every day to make intercession When you make intercession in a Near Eastern ancient court, you stand to present the case. Jesus is doing that for Stephen. And every day, no matter what your day is like, Jesus is doing that for you. If only, like, you know, Elijah prays, Oh Lord, open their eyes so that they may see. Well, God records it so that we may see. God puts it here so that you may know. And that every day, as we go about living out Jesus, Know that Jesus has got you. You're my boy. You're my girl. I got you. Go for it. Bring it on. I got you. I love that. Wherever we go, and my goodness, is it not, and I am with you always, to the very end of the age. I don't think I appreciate how cool that is until I see this scene with Stephen here. But here's the even more amazing part. Here's what Stephen realizes. He's not just making intercession for Stephen. He wants to make intercession for all those guys. That's our Jesus. That's who we imitate. And so Stephen, a disciple of Jesus, forgives. And he intercedes himself to say, Oh Lord, please do not hold this sin against them. Do not turn them over. Give them another chance. The minute that Stephen allows the full grace of God to wash through him, to marinate in through him, when he just exudes the love of Christ and the purpose of Christ, the very thing that he wants is to even save his persecutors. It's no wonder that his zeal took him from busboy to preacher all day long. And so... If we're going to walk in the way of Christ, if we're going to be affected by the love of Christ, if we're going to be able to know this advocacy that is yours right now, you got air cover that you can't even begin to imagine, that is yours right now. Grace upon grace already given, as we just heard in the communion. That if that's going to be the case, then my goodness, it ought to be the case then for us, that prompted by the Holy Spirit... We let everybody know about this, just as Stephen did. We desire to bring reconciliation, atonement to all people, no matter what it takes, no matter what needs to be said, no matter what lengths it is that we need to go to. Stephen went from busboy to glory. What are we going to go to by allowing the Holy Spirit to reach us through this story today? If nothing happens, then we go from disciple To a Pharisee, because that's how you make a Pharisee. You gain insight, you learn the scripture better, you know its nuances, but you do not put it into practice in life. God forbid for any one of us, but instead of that, let it be the case, one after another of us, that we take hold of that security, of that promise I'm with you always, of that advocacy that I got you. And that we launch from here, ready to bring this love, this overture, this disruption that God wants to bring with the same gusto as a busboy that rose from busboy to this. What will we rise from as a result of this work of the Holy Spirit in us? From what to what? Decide what that will be and decide that you will make this same difference. Praise God.